We had not been an hour in the house of this kind-hearted man when we were convinced of the truth of his statement as to their numbers, for the rats ran about on the floors in dozens, and during our meal two men were stationed at the table to keep them off. "'What a pity you have no cats,' said Peterkin, and he aimed a blow at another reckless intruder and missed it. "'We would indeed be glad to have a few,' rejoined the teacher, "'but they are difficult to be got. The hogs, we find, are very good rat-killers, but they do not seem to be able to keep the numbers down. I have heard that they are better than cats.' As the teacher said this, his good-natured black face was wrinkled with a smile of merriment. Observing that I had noticed it, he said, "'I smiled just now when I remembered the fate of the first cat that was taken to Rarotonga. This is one of the stations of the London Missionary Society. It, like our own, is infested with rats, and a cat was brought at last to the island. It was a large black one. On being turned loose, instead of being content to stay among men, the cat took to the mountains and lived in a wild state, sometimes paying visits during the night to the houses of the natives, some of whom, living at a distance from the settlement, had not heard of the cat's arrival and were dreadfully frightened in consequence, calling it a monster of the deep and flying in terror away from it. One night the cat, feeling a desire for company, I suppose, took its way to the house of a chief who had recently been converted to Christianity and had begun to learn to read and pray. The chief's wife, who was sitting awake at his side while he slept, beheld with horror two fires glistening in the doorway, and heard with surprise a mysterious voice. Almost petrified with fear, she awoke her husband and began to upbraid him for forsaking his old religion and burning his god, who, she declared, was now come to be avenged of them. "'Get up and pray! Get up and pray!' she cried. The chief arose, and on opening his eyes beheld the same glaring lights and heard the same ominous sound. Impelled by the extreme urgency of the case, he commenced with all possible vehemence to vociferate the alphabet as a prayer to God to deliver them from the vengeance of Satan. On hearing this, the cat, as much alarmed as themselves, fled precipitately away, leaving this chief and his wife congratulating themselves on the efficacy of their prayer. We were much diverted with this anecdote, which the teacher related in English so good that we certainly could not have supposed him a native, but for the color of his face and the foreign accent in his tone. Next day we walked out with this interesting man, and were much entertained and instructed by his conversation as we rambled through the cool, shady groves of bananas, citrons, limes, and other trees or sauntered among the cottages of the natives, and watched them while they labored diligently in the taro beds or manufactured the tapa, or native cloth. To some of these Jack put questions through the medium of the missionary and the replies were such as to surprise us at the extent of their knowledge. Indeed, Peterkin very truly remarked that they seemed to know a considerable deal more than Jack himself. Among other pieces of interesting information that we obtained was the following in regard to coral formations. The islands of the Pacific, said our friend, are of three different kinds or classes. 
Those of the first class are volcanic, mountainous, and wild, some shooting their jagged peaks into the clouds at an elevation of ten or fifteen thousand feet. Those of the second class are of crystallized limestone and vary in height from one hundred to five hundred feet. The hills on these are not so wild or broken as those of the first class, but are richly clothed with vegetation and very beautiful. I have no doubt that the coral island on which you were wrecked was one of this class. They are supposed to have been upheaved from the bottom of the sea by volcanic agency, but they are not themselves volcanic in their nature, neither are they of coral formation. Those of the third class are the low coralline islands, usually having lagoons of water in their midst. They are very numerous. As to the manner in which coral islands and reefs are formed, there are various opinions on this point. I will give you what seems to me the most probable theory, a theory, I may add, which is held by some of the good and scientific missionaries. It is well known that there is much lime in salt water. It is also known that coral is composed of lime. It is supposed that the polyps or coral insects have the power of extracting this lime to their bodies, and with this material they build their little cells or habitations. They choose the summit of a volcano or the top of a submarine mountain as a foundation on which to build, for it is found that they never work at any greater depth below the surface. On this they work. The polyps on the mountain top, of course, reach the surface first, then those at the outer edges reach the top sooner than the others between them and the center, thus forming the coral reef surrounding the lagoon of water and the central island. After that the insects within the lagoon cease working. When the surface of the water is reached these myriads of wonderful creatures die. Then birds visit the spot, and seeds are thus conveyed thither which take root and spring up and flourish. Thus are commenced those coralline islets of which you have seen so many in these seas. The reefs round the large islands are formed in a similar manner. When we consider, added the missionary, the smallness of the architects used by our Heavenly Father in order to form those lovely and innumerable islands, we are filled with much of that feeling which induced the ancient king to exclaim, how manifold, O Lord, are thy works! In wisdom hast thou made them all. We all heartily agreed with the missionary in this sentiment, and felt not a little gratified to find that the opinions which Jack and I had been led to form, from personal observation on our coral island, were thus, to a great extent, corroborated. The missionary also gave us an account of the manner in which Christianity had been introduced among them. He said, When missionaries were first sent here three years ago, a small vessel brought them, and the chief, who is now dead, promised to treat well the two native teachers who were left behind with their wives on the island, but scarcely had the boat which landed them returned to the ship than the natives began to maltreat their guests, taking away all they possessed and offering them further violence, so that when the boat was sent in haste to fetch them away the clothes of both men and women were torn nearly off their backs. 
Two years after this the vessel visited them again, and I, being in her, volunteered to land alone, without any goods whatever, begging that my wife be brought to me the following year, that is, this year, and as you see she is with me. But the surf was so high that the boat could not land me, so with nothing on but my trousers and shirt, and with a few catechisms and a Bible, besides some portions of the scripture translated into the mango tongue, I sprang into the sea and swam ashore on the crust of a breaker. I was instantly dragged up the beach by the natives, who, on finding I had nothing worth having upon me, let me alone. I then made signs to my friends in the ship to leave me, which they did. At first the natives listened to me in silence, but laughed at what I said while I preached the gospel of our blessed Savior Jesus Christ to them. Afterwards they treated me ill sometimes, but I persevered and continued to dwell among them and dispute and exhort them to give up their sinful ways of life, burn their idols, and come to Jesus. About a month after I landed I heard that the chief was dead. He was the father of the present chief, who is now a most consistent member of the church. It is a custom here that when a chief dies his wives are strangled and buried with him. Knowing this I hastened to his house to endeavor to prevent such cruelty if possible. When I arrived I found two of the wives had already been killed while another was in the art of being strangled. I pleaded hard for her, but it was too late. She was already dead. I then entreated the son to spare the fourth wife, and after much hesitation my prayer was granted, but in half an hour afterwards this poor woman repented of being unfaithful, as she termed it, to her husband, and insisted on being strangled, which was accordingly done. All this time the chief's son was walking up and down before his father's house with a brow black as thunder. When he entered I went in with him and found to my surprise that his father was not dead. The old man was sitting on a mat in a corner with an expression of placid resignation on his face. "'Why,' said I, "'have you strangled your father's wives before he is dead?' To this the son replied, he is dead. That is no longer my father. He is as good as dead now. He is to be buried alive. I now remembered having heard that it is a custom among the Fiji islanders that when the reigning chief grows old and infirm the heir to the chieftainship has a right to depose his father, in which case he is considered as dead and is buried alive. The young chief was now about to follow this custom and despite my earnest entreaties and pleadings the old chief was buried that day before my eyes in the same grave with his four strangled wives. Oh, my heart groaned when I saw this, and I prayed to God to open the hearts of these poor creatures as he had already opened mine, and pour into them the light and the love of the gospel of Jesus. My prayer was answered very soon. A week afterwards the son, who was now chief of the tribe, came to me, bearing his god on his shoulders and groaning beneath its weight. Flinging it down at my feet, 
he desired me to burn it. You may conceive how overjoyed I was at this. I sprang up and embraced him while I shed tears of joy. Then we made a fire and burned the god to ashes amid an immense concourse of the people who seemed terrified at what was being done and shrank back when we burned the god, expecting some signal vengeance to be taken upon us. But seeing that nothing happened, they changed their minds and thought that our god must be the true one after all. From that time the mission prospered steadily, and now, while there is not a single man in the tribe who has not burned his household gods and become a convert to Christianity, there are not a few, I hope, who are true followers of the Lamb, having been plucked as brands from the burning by him who can save unto the uttermost. I will not tell you more of our progress at this time, but you see, he said, waving his hand around him, the village and the church did not exist a year ago. We were indeed much interested in this account, and I could not help again in my heart praying to God to prosper those missionary societies that send such inestimable blessings to these islands of dark and bloody idolatry. The teacher also added that the other tribes were very indignant at this one for having burned its gods and threatened to destroy it altogether but they had done nothing yet. And if they should, said the teacher, the Lord is on our side. Of whom shall we be afraid? Have the missionaries many stations in these seas? inquired Jack. Oh, yes. The London Missionary Society have a great many in the Tahiti group and other islands in that quarter. Then the Wesleyans have the Fiji Islands all to themselves, and the Americans have many stations in other groups. But still, my friend, there are hundreds of islands here, the natives of which have never heard of Jesus or the good word of God or the Holy Spirit, and thousands are living and dying in the practice of those terrible sins and bloody murders of which you have already heard. I trust, my friends, he added, looking earnestly into our faces, I trust that if you ever return to England you will tell your Christian friends that the horrors which they hear of in regard to these islands are literally true, and that when they have heard the worst, the half has not been told them, for there are perpetuated here foul deeds of darkness of which man may not speak. You may also tell them, he said, looking around with a smile, while a tear of gratitude trembled in his eye and rolled down his coal-black cheek. Tell them, of the blessings that the gospel has wrought here. We assured our friend that we would certainly not forget his request. On returning towards the village about noon, we remarked on the beautiful whiteness of the cottages. That is owing to the lime with which they are plastered, said the teacher. When the natives were converted, as I have described, I set them to work to build cottages for themselves, and also this handsome church which you see. When the framework and other parts of the house were up, I sent the people to fetch coral from the sea. They brought immense quantities. Then I made them cut wood, and piling the coral above it, set it on fire. Look, look, cried the poor people in amazement. What wonderful people the Christians are. He is roasting stones. We shall not need taro or breadfruit any more. We may eat stones. 
but their surprise was still greater when the coral was reduced to a fine, soft, white powder. They immediately set up a great shout, and mingling the lime with water, rubbed their faces and their bodies all over with it, and ran through the village, screaming with delight. They were also much surprised at another thing they saw me do. I wished to make some household furniture, and constructed a turning lathe to assist me. The first thing that I turned was the leg of a sofa, which was no sooner finished than the chief seized it with wonder and delight, and ran through the village exhibiting it to the people, who looked upon it with great admiration. The chief then, tying a string to it, hung it round his neck as an ornament. He afterwards told me that if he had seen it before he became a Christian he would have made it his god. As the teacher concluded this antidote we reached his door. Saying that he had business to attend to, he left us to amuse ourselves as we best could. "'Now, lads,' said Jack, turning abruptly towards us, and buttoning up his jacket as he spoke, "'I'm off to see the battle. I've no particular fondness for seeing bloodshed, but I must find out the nature of these fellows and see their customs with my own eyes, so that I may be able to speak of it again, if need be, authoritatively.' It's only six miles off, and we don't run much more risk than that of getting a rap with a stray stone or an overshot arrow. Will you go? To be sure we will, said Peterkin. If they chance to see us we'll cut and run for it, added Jack. Dear me, cried Peterkin, you run? I thought you would scorn to run from anyone. So I would, if it were my duty to fight, returned Jack coolly but as I don't want to fight and don't intend to fight, if they offer to attack us I'll run away like the veriest coward that ever went by the name of Peterkin. So come along. End of chapter 30 Recording by Tom Weiss